0: This is the next chapter in our series of interviews recorded at the Bryn Mawr bookstore in Cambridge. Our first episode in the series was an interview with Alexis Boylan in episode five. Today, we continue the series with a conversation with Barbara Powell, an alumna of Bryn Mawr. Barbara has a lifelong commitment to education. Among her many accomplishments, she taught high school in Malawi, has worked on several curriculum development and teacher education projects, from the role of women in American society to exploring humanitarian law. She volunteers alongside others at the Bryn Mawr Bookstore, determined to save a bookstore she refers to as a treasure. It was a pleasure to hear about the books that have shaped Barbara's life. Um, So maybe you can tell me your name and where you're from. Barbara Powell,
1: and I'm from Cambridge, Massachusetts. All right, so what are your earliest memories? I grew of up thinking? in New Jersey. All right. And before that, I'm watching D.C. during the war, Second World War. All right. Earliest memories, I remember my parents reading to me and um, when I was really little. Um, and then the... the The key memory was in the summer of the sixth grade when I switched schools. And I went to a school that had a required summer reading list. And I just remember lying under... We had a cherry tree in the backyard. And before I would read anything, I would sit down with my parents and my father would say, Oh, the Scarlet Pimpernel, that was a great book. And my mother would recommend books. And then... um, Uh, and then we'd go to the library and take them out, and I'd just lie under this tree with ants crawling over my legs and read. And, you know, I'd do that for at least six or eight weeks of summer. Wow. Yeah. Can you remember, like, what books really made an impression on you at that time? Well, The Scarlet Pimpernel was one, and then there were just a lot of good novels and a lot of... But the ones I remember... I remember one in particular, which was Jane Eyre, and talk about bibliotherapy. Um, I remember reading it, and um, we had a pretty well-oiled household, and um, we had a bell that rang before supper, and then there was, an, which was the warning bell, and we all had to, there were four of us kids, we all had, always had to say warning bell, and then the real bell, and we'd say second bell, and then we had to come down and eat. And, uh, of course, no devices in those days, and conversation about what you'd done during the day or the topics of the day or what you'd read were really important, so um, one night I didn't come down. And um, and my father said, oh, where is she? What's the matter? And my mother said, well um, she has a disease. And my father said, what is it? And she said, she has gynaritis, and um, she doesn't have to come down. <laughs> didn't, and I finished the book in a couple days and loved it.
0: What was it about that book that drew
1: you in, do you think? I I think... um Jane Eyre as a courageous woman, who girl, then woman, who didn't have a lot to begin with and um, used her I'm mind and her resources and kind of them. figured it out was one whole part. I think the teaching part um, was another whole part because I always wanted to be a teacher. And I think the third thing was um, her relationship with Mr. Rochester which was a great romance and yet uh, you know, he was a pretty unusual guy and um in many ways, both his personality and then later on when he was burned and and she just went for what she saw there even though it wasn't conventional. So I think have all you, those things. Have you reread that book at different times? I have not reread it, but um I have been to classes in schools where they're teaching it and find it fascinating because there's a whole feminist slant on it which i um, which wasn't as what um, didn't exist in my in my high school in the fifties, hmm. so that was fascinating hmm. yeah. Yeah, I liked it. It's a good idea. I'll go home and rewrite it. Yeah, sometimes you might find you're reading a different book or. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah that mm. that has happened to me. I remember. Oh, really? Reading Madame Bovary again in high school, and absolutely loving it and thinking. What a great woman! She is not going to be bound by this conventional marriage, this boring guy, and um, she's going to branch out and do what's unconventional, do what's you know against the mores and follow her own heart. And then I read it when I was a wife and mother, and I thought, what is wrong with this woman? <laughs> she has a baby. She's abandoning her baby for this. What? And. And I just thought she, he was... Um, Charles, the husband, was much more sympathetic. And he was, you know, plotty, along, not a vibrant guy, but, you know, solid. And I thought, what is her problem? Like, <laughs> she should just be thankful for what she has. <laughs> and raise the kid instead yeah. of abandon the kid. Mm-hmm. So totally different.
0: Yeah. I mean, you said when you read it in high school, you liked that it was not a conventional... Um, story of a woman in a marriage. Yeah. Were those the yeah. kind of stories that you were,
1: like, unconventional women? Was that something yes, interesting yes. to you in high school? Yeah, and then I went to an all-girls school. Yeah, what and, was that like? It was great, and because they had a lot of teachers who just liked all this stuff, you know. They were mostly women, and, uh, hmm. yeah, I, I love my high school. Yeah,
0: yeah. So what are some other books then, like through high school into college, like what are some books from that time that you remember being really important?
1: Well, I love Jane Austen, and especially Pride and Prejudice. And I remember coming back, we had a fantastic English teacher junior year in high school, and coming back to um, a reunion, and somebody said, my nickname was Pixie, Pixie will know. And I said, know what? And they said, well, what's the first line? of Pride and Prejudice. And I said, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Because our teacher made us memorize that and then said, all the themes of the book are in that first sentence. Hmm. And I I just loved their book. I loved um, the switching of Pride and Prejudice with Elizabeth being the Prideful one. <laughs> I thought it was a great story, and I've loved all the iterations since, you know, with Colin Firth, <laughs> etc.
0: Yeah. So you think that book adaptations on film can be as good as the book or it can be true well, to the book?
1: Well, what I've realized as I've grown older is that, you know, you read something and you think that's it. And then you realize actually you're in a different place in your life when you read things, and so your interpretation is different. Other people's interpretation are different. And then um, I worked with um, a program of Actors Shakespeare Project um, with incarcerated girls who were in lockup facilities, and the actors would bring in some a play, Merchant of Venice, Othello, and with all kinds of theater techniques get these kids to you know, understand which they really did, some of the conflicts and some of the characters and I remember after the Merchant of Venice, um, the audience had no parents because these parents were not in the picture very much. And they had a couple of social workers, me, the evaluator of the program, and, you know, it's like 11 people. And the kids wanted to talk back, and they, um... So they, at the end of the play, they, and it wasn't the whole play, it was a truncated version. Somebody asked them, Did you choose your own parts, or were they chosen for you? This kid said, I can answer that. I chose Jessica, who was the daughter of Shylock, because... She had a terrible relationship with her father. I have a terrible relationship with my father. She ran away with a Christian boyfriend knowing it would really upset her father. I almost ran away with my boyfriend knowing it was... And she completely got what I never got when I read it in high school. Ah. So um, I began to realize that um, there are different adaptations of things. um, And... You know, you take a good piece of literature and it can expand and be developed by other people and it's not a, well, it is a bastardization, but it's not a bad thing because it reaches people in a way that is good. Yeah. How did you get involved with that program? Oh, I'm in education and I do evaluations of weird programs. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: but that's a really great use of reading as a program. Are there yeah. Other programs you're involved with that are kind of like that?
1: Well, one I was involved with was um, bringing music and art to able-bodied kids and disabled kids working together. That was less reading and more um, actually creating art or creating music. Mm. Um, do you teach? Do you teach books and reading? In your have you? Taught? I have. I've been an English teacher. Yeah. What uh, are some of your favorite books to teach? Well, the first year I taught. Was in Malawi in Africa, and I taught. Treasure. Well, how
0: did you maybe? How you tell us how you got to Malawi? Like what brought you there?
1: Well, I went to Bryn Mawr and um, the day after graduation, through the African American Institute, I flew to Malawi, and the in, it was then called Nyasaland. And, and while I was there, it got self-government, and the next year it got independence, and. The African American Institute both sent teachers over and sent students from Africa back to the United States. So my biggest time of power was when I had to give the SATs in Malawi. And we sent 22 kids over to colleges all throughout the United States after they had taken them. And and this was in 62, 63, so it was early on. But teaching Treasure Island, um, I realized that most of the kids had no idea of what an ocean was oh, wow. and what a ship on an ocean was, you know, because they were all lived in their villages and there's agricultural, and they came into the town to school. But I knew that there was a couple of kids who lived on in Monkey Bay, which was on Lake Nyasa, which is this long lake in the country. So I asked them to explain what a big body of water was like. And, and they said, you know, you can look and you can't see any land at the other side. And you have to have boats. and So that kind of set up the whole Treasure Island thing. In the middle of this class, three white men in pinstripe suits walked into the back of the class and sat down. Kids all sat up. I had no idea who they were. I nodded, kept going, and um, at the end they said, could we see you in this office? I said, yes. And they said, well, we're from Her Majesty's Inspectorate, you know, the British system of school inspectors. And we would, we would like to comment on your class. How many years have you been teaching? And I said, well, you know, three weeks. And, and then they said, um, they used the following 11 words, which were too hard for these kids. And they had them all written down, I said, thank you. And they were basically pretty positive, so that was nice. And they liked the fact that I had used the students to explain to other students what a large body of water was. <laughs> so that's teaching treasure wow. in the in the beginning. Wow. And then uh, when I came back to the United States, I was teaching in Newton, Mass, which is a very good school system. And the principal opened the door of a closet and said, "There are 30 copies of each of these books. Choose." And so I chose a rumor godden episode of Sparrows. I don't know if you know this book. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, and taught that.
0: Hmm. Wow. So you never, you rarely got to pick the books you wanted
1: to teach. Well, nowadays. Yeah. Now um, you, can. And, you know, everything is prescribed. Um, but then it was great. Yeah. And luckily, that was a book I had read and loved. Yeah. And, and then I taught um, I taught ninth grade, and it was English and social studies. Mm. So if we were te- doing the First World War, we taught All Quiet on the Western Front, the Eric Maria Remarque book, which is excellent book about war, anti-war. And I loved teaching books that were related to the historical period that I was teaching in social studies, and that was the whole thrust of them. That's why it was a good school system. Yeah,
0: wow. Have you ever had to teach a book that you personally didn't like, but you had to teach it?
1: <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I remember in Nyasaland I had to teach um History of the British Commonwealth. And I remember, this is not a, a book of literature, it's a oh, history no. book. And I remember reading this thing and um, coming into class and opening the book and then dramatically closing it and said, this book is wrong. Let me tell you what really happened. <laughs> it was about the American Revolution and it was the British perspective. And I said From the American <laughs> so And
0: it was the it British was... perspective that
1: Well, you know, it didn't have all of the things the British were doing wrong, like the Stamp Act and the, you know, no taxation without revenue. None of that, you know. Um, We were rebels and, you know, disobeying the law and that kind of stuff. Well, it turned out to be a good move pedagogically because here was this African nation on the cusp of independence itself. So, wow, you were just in the middle of it. <laughs> right. Right. Were the students into that that you were going yeah. to shut yeah. the book? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they so, were I mean, students were great. Yeah. How long were you there? I was there for two years, and the education for these kids was not compulsory, because they didn't have enough schools So to make education compulsory. So I did a lot of stuff in addition to um, teaching. I would go out with the district commissioner, and we'd go to these villages, and we would count kids, you know, little kids from zero to four, and then he'd say, "Okay, this village needs a school this big by, you know, a year from now." Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It what was, was it
0: like for you to be there?
1: Going was, through that? It was. It um, was. It was really fun. I mean, it was a challenge. I think I was probably incredibly naive, and um, but I learned a tremendous amount, and. Uh, you know, there were things, that, and I was I was very keen on kind of fitting into the culture, and so I did things which, in retrospect, I would not do today. For example, um, we went a group of men and women. I was the only Mzungu, you know, white person, and we went to uh, the lake, Lake Nyasa, and people were fishing. And once they finished fishing, they built a fire and they cooked the fish and everybody except me knew how to eat the fish and spit out the bones and digest the meat it was an incredible with these bones flying out of their mouths incredible experience but what i didn't know is the women got the crap they got the head and the tail of the fish and none of the good meat and i thought okay well i'm not gonna I'm not gonna create a big gender fuss here. I'll just eat the head and the tail. So I did a lot of stuff like that, which I think has changed, and I don't know if I would've nowadays. (laughs) So was that a hard
0: transition to come back
1: to? Well, I went because I wanted to teach in a place where um, kids really wanted to learn, and um, to see if I wanted to teach as a career. I thought I did, but and so then i came back and i went to the harvard ed school and got a master of arts in teaching and then then went to newton and taught an episode of sparrows <laughs> well i have to tell you one other story about reading um, i'd never read the grapes of wrath and one weekend i started to read it and i absolutely loved it couldn't put it down And. Monday morning came, and you had to call in if you were sick by 6 o'clock in the morning so they could get a sub for your class. So I called in Miss Hamilton. She was the vice principal. I said, (coughs) Miss Hamilton, this is Miss Shefflin. I'm really really sick, um, uh, and I can't come in today. And she said, well, I'm so sorry. Get better. I'll get a sub. So then I just hung up the phone and went back. To the book and finished it that day <laughs> and i felt a little guilty but i thought that's the only time i've, I've played hooky uh-huh. It's for a book a and it was for book. a book exactly yeah.
0: <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> that's amazing um well thank you for telling me all these stories i so appreciate it i mean is there any books that you've read recently that you would recommend
1: well i'm in three book groups one is the one that Corny runs, the Bryn Mawr Book Group. And one is this Dante group that we're doing with President Nancy Vickers, who's the former president of Bryn Mawr and a big Dante scholar. Wow. And we're taking uh, a year to do it. We started with the Inferno, the Italian on one side, English on the other. And it's a group of a dozen people. And some of them are um, they know Italian, can read it fluently. Some of them know about medieval Florence and all the characters in the Inferno, in the Divine Comedy. Because there's you have to know about Virgil and the Aeneid. I mean, there are all these references. That, and then we were just going to do the Inferno. and But no, we want to go on. So we just finished Purgatorio. And in September, we started Paradise. Had you read Dante before? Never read, never read it before this. And that's been fabulous because she, I would never read it on my own um, because she knows all of these references and can help with them. You have to figure out how to read it too because you can read a page and then read all the footnotes and go nuts (laughs) or you can read the poetry through and then look at the footnotes. And you get the whole, the beauty of the language, even in translation, yeah, without understanding exactly what all the references are. Yeah, Hmm. yeah, that's really
0: that's a big task to take on, but it's I would imagine it's a great book to read. Or
1: it is. It is. People get their opinions and everything. Yep. Yep. What's the third book group you're in? What is the third book? Oh, there's an organization called Harvard Neighbors, and uh, it's. It's for people who are retired from teaching at Harvard, or or spouses of fellows, um, or spouses of faculty. It's a it's people who no longer or uh, have a direct relationship with the university, but um, and it's a very mixed bag of people, um, mostly women, some men, and we have. Um, we decide every May what we want to read the the next year. And um, things like My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante, mm. we have half of them are um, um, nonfiction, and half are fiction. And it's a really interesting group, and I read books that I wouldn't read Ordinarily, so that's good. Yeah. Do you mostly read fiction or nonfiction? Well, this this group, you read both. So I mostly Mm. read fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm. Um, Except, you know, I read read things like McCulloch, the the Wright brothers, which I loved, and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great. I just read that myself. Yeah, very very good book, I think. And you learn so much about the technical stuff, which I'm not a.
0: No, my, one of my brothers is a pilot, so I actually oh, well, great. read it with him. And I'm afraid to fly, so I was hoping it would help me with my fear. And did it? No. <laughs> but it was interesting anyway. <laughs> but, well, thank you so much for talking to me. I so appreciate it. I love listening to your stories. Now we'll hear from Cornelia Robard, a member of Bryn Mawr College, Class of 1961. Hailing from the East Coast, as Cornelia's interview suggests, Her life has been defined by a love of travel, adventure, and learning. She had her first real job after college in India, where she taught students nearly her own age. From there, her travels brought her to Africa, France, and eventually Massachusetts, where she currently makes her home and volunteers at the Bryn Mawr Bookstore. A writer of memoir and fiction, Cornelia brings her knack for storytelling to her own account of what books have meant to her
2: life in the conversation you're about to hear. Hi, I'm uh, Cornelia Robart. I was called Corny in college, from my college, and I live in Somerville now. I lived overseas for 20-odd years doing different things, and um, here we are talking about books in this lovely bookstore.
0: Lovely it is. Um, you wrote a really lovely reflection on your life as a reader. I'm wondering if you could start by having you read that for us.
2: Well, the original question was a book that really was important to you. So, the books, two books, are The Jungle Book and Kim, both by Rudyard Kipling, and both written in, well, 1891 for The Jungle Book, and Kim was written in 1900. Um, And I started out with my family. My parents met at a cocktail party in New York across a crowded room. My father was an English-sourced Yankee. My New York mother hid her southern background well. My father thought everything British was as the world should be, and wore his solar topi on hot weekend days. The British Empire was a wonderful thing, the upstanding English of the North spreading the rule of law and fashionably tailored suits to the rest of the world. My mother favored French pre-revolution styles. They necessarily agreed on French Louis XVI furniture bequeathed by my parental grandmother, but also on English literature. Agatha Christie for my mother and Rudyard Kipling for my father. And thus I was introduced to The Jungle Book, and later Kim. I might have been 10 years old. Although I tried to become Robin Hood, Uh, He seemed to be too pointy and too sharp and too single-minded for my young female appreciation. And besides, the Jungle Book animals seemed more accessible, less unforgiving than the human personages. When the movie came out with Sabu playing Mowgli, I was totally hooked, a crush that lasted until he left his beautiful adolescence behind. I learned the names of all the animals, listened hundreds of times to a recording 78 RPM, would you believe it, uh, of the film and learned the Miklas Rosa tune to the Village Mother's Lullaby and memorized the seal lullaby from the Jungle Books. Um, But then I was ready for Kim and All I was in love with everyone, both in the book and the film. I played Kim's game, Identify What Is Missing, with my ESL students, and my own children. And this is all to say that when I was looking for a job in the early 60s, and teaching nursing and secretariat were the easy choice, publishing needing some extra heft, I gravitated to teaching English language overseas, not wanting to show my uncertainty about English literature in an American classroom. Having had a fine time in Italy on a language learning jaunt. I thought I'd like to return there, nothing doing at the agency I worked with, but just above Italy on the list of available openings was a spot in India in the Himalayan resort town of Darjeeling. I applied and was accepted and began a unique chapter of my life. This was in 1962. Drugs were appearing in the Asian tourist itineraries for youth. Nice young college girls on their own in Asia were likely targets for who knew what. My widowed mother was beyond comment, but bewildered and submissive followed my progress through the administrative and financial hurdles. I never did get a proper visa and was eventually deported from the country by the government decree. I went to Colombia and took a course in Hindi. The teacher was a Hindi speaker, but had no notion of how to teach language. He taught us some easy nursery rhymes that I can still recite. Didi Ati Agbakati. <laughs> Many adventures later I returned home, still enamored of India, still thrilling with a special, this is mine, my own place, feeling at novels, Bollywood films, both Bollywood and the somber Bengali film series by Satyajit Rai. More than this, I have returned to India as a volunteer for Habitat for Humanity. The first trip was near Pune not far from Mumbai, where Jimmy and Rosalind Carter participated along with Brad Pitt, then Pondicherry, now Chennai, and also on several tours with friends. At last, my poor Hindi came to my rescue at a border resort in South India. Nag! I exclaimed to a gardener as we waited for the border to reopen. Within two minutes, all the groundskeepers and housekeepers had arrived to see the long, black snake I had spied entering my room. Ready to downsize, I recently cleared my bookshelves of books I hadn't read or hadn't finished and never would, planning to donate them to the Bryn Mawr bookstore. A dozen titles remained. Kittredge's Shakespeare plays, poetry studied and loved at college, and, of course, the two great Kipling masterpieces, The Jungle Book and Kim. But even as I write, I have discovered both books wet by a damp rag left by the cleaning lady. Nothing remains forever.
0: Thank you. That's really wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> um, that, that sounds like it was fun to write, too, to think about. I
2: had a good time remembering it. Yeah. I did. I did. And then you mentioned, like, early childhood, uh, uh, learning to read, I guess. and. I was the last of a number of children and my parents were quite busy with other things and we had somebody to take care of me in the morning, get me my breakfast and dressed. And she would read a book called Little Eagle and it was a book about an Indian boy out on the plains and we learned lots of vocabulary about travoice and papoose and, and um, I'd follow along and pretty soon I figured out where she turned the page and pretty soon I figured out oh there's the word eagle and before long I was reading. Same book all summer. <laughs> and so that was how it started. And otherwise, um, I, I read all the time, partly because I was quite isolated as a kid, so it's easy to go to the library and get books. And I Why were you isolated? Oh, because I was the youngest of four somewhat older children and we were out in the country without without any neighbors my age or they weren't readers <laughs> we played bicycle uh, so and then let's see and so then i went to the new york city for for elementary school second part of elementary school and then you know the summer book list i'd finished by july and i just love them
1: <laughs> yeah mhm
0: what books do you remember thinking you really identified with growing up
2: hmm not so many I was kind of a tomboy and they really weren't uh, the the Judy whatever they are series uh, the detec- girl detective didn't Nancy care drew. much for them Nancy drew yeah didn't after the Hardy Boys that was pretty so <laughs> soapy <laughs> uh, I love the Hardy Boys books and the Black Stallion. and I would race down as soon as a new one was published and save my pocket money and pay for it. Mm-hmm. I had all of them. I don't know where they went.
0: Yeah, I've had a lot of people say who felt like tomboys that um, Joe March and Little Women was someone they could identify with. Did you read Little Women, or
2: I did, but I tell you, I preferred Little Men. Uh, partly because the characters were more interesting. They were children in trouble or mm. you know, sort of uh, at risk, yeah. and. Well, there were more, there were more guys. <laughs> and not, they weren't worrying about getting dressed and whether they had a pearl button on there, or just a plain old uh, maker Acre one. Yeah. Uh, um, so, uh, yeah, those those were ones. And I, my parents read a lot, but it was kind of old for me at the time. I remember a series of little biographies uh, Christopher Columbus and. Um, uh not Darwin but uh, Luther uh, the plant expert um uh Burbank um and and they were just little little small things that were on a shelf in the back hall and take them down and they're sort of stiff but it led me to know a few of the thinkers in other realms but animals or or uh, uh, society yeah Yeah. Yeah. so now now um, I'm listening to books on tape a lot more partly because my my glasses just aren't working (laughs) anymore (laughs) and so that's that's easier and I can also do other things while I'm doing it Um, I think reading at home is a challenge at some point because there's the telephone and there's yeah. cats and food and all those <laughs> things, and I say to myself, I want to just go down to Starbucks or Panera or someplace, and, or to the library even, and just sit down and read. That's a good idea.
1: Yeah,
2: that's a very
0: good idea. <laughs>
2: you know. um,
0: so I know you mentioned going to Bryn Mawr, and we're at Bryn Mawr Bookstore, and you mentioned in your piece about books that you've kept that meant a lot to you that you discovered at college, so I'm wondering what books you read in college that really stayed with you.
2: Well, the poetry. I uh, kept back Yeats and Auden and compendium of an anthology of modern poetry. And I, I know I can get them again, but those ratty covers <laughs> speak to me, and they were friends for a long time. It took me a, a lot of serious talking to by an organizer to get rid of the ones I have. <laughs> um, and let's see what else. I like sort of techno adventure, um, and I, I like I like I like action and um, there's some novels. The, the Jane Eyre was uh, fed to us very gently and sweetly by the seventh grade teacher, and she would read it aloud, and then we had vocabulary that she wrote up on the board, and we had to copy. None of us photocopying then. Uh, so.
0: Were you able to enjoy it because you read
2: it in school, or did it
0: ruin it for you to have to read it in school?
2: No, not at all. Nothing ruined school for me in those days.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mention it because on almost every other interview I've done for this, Jane Eyre has come up, and if it was assigned in school, the people, the readers hated it.
2: Oh, we loved our teacher. Because they read it in
0: school, but if you read it outside of school, people seemed to like it more.
2: No, but we had homework, and we learned the vocabulary, and she read the passages that were readable out loud and uh, we just loved it. The end of the afternoon was kind of peaceful and we just sat there and read along or didn't. No, it was a very happy experience. Mm-hmm. I do believe that the way you are introduced to anything in uh, a, safe, friendly way or as in a sort of a, you better do this, uh, has a lot has a lot to do with whether you're going to Continue in that frame of, or not? Mm. I think that was the situation with girls in math, for instance. Nobody heard of a girl doing anything beyond algebra uh, in my in my uh, school career. Mm. And I think we had one girl who took trigonometry, and I still don't know what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> At least two of us.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and I liked uh, writing also. Um, I wrote my first published poem when I was eight. Wow! Uh, yeah. What oh, was it about? Oh, for the life of a garbage man, day after day, he ever, he empties every can. Uh, but he gets paid pretty well, so he don't mind the smell. <laughs> and they put it in the yearbook. <laughs> that was the early ending of that career. <laughs> well, it was kind of fun. Hmm. And now I do, I do writing for the, our, we have Bryn Mawr book group, and I write up um, little uh, reports on what the conversation was about, and how we felt about the characters, or what worked or didn't work. And I've, I took it on myself, and I'm doing it for about 20 years now. We're having our 20th anniversary. Uh, that book group um, next Tuesday.
0: Wow! Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, That's great.
2: Yeah. What well, kinds of
0: things do you read in the group?
2: Incredibly varied. Incredibly varied. Everything from science to uh, uh, we we actually did read a graphic novel once. Uh, Persepolis was on it, um, and uh, novels with characters that develop, um, and some. Well, the most recent one was. He wanted the moon, and it's about a doctor who was uh, uh, had bipolar disease and was in and out of hospitals, and his daughter tried to reconstruct his life, and that was very interesting. Everyone had something to say. Curiously enough, everyone in the room had or knew somebody uh, who had dealt with mental illness on hmm. one level or another. And I don't think we expected that it was so widespread, in, in our little group anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and some others, some of the novels like The Little Chinese Seamstress, uh, Balzac and The Little Chinese Seamstress, a few Indian books, a few um, uh, books of, uh, let's see, the nine parts of Desire about Muslim women. Um, that Kind of varied, and somebody will come in with a great idea. Last one, came in with a great idea and everyone loved the idea and it was called Between the Two Oceans and it's recent it's very popular and none of we all agreed this was the best thing we could do no disapproval and none of us liked it (laughs) but it made a great discussion about why you didn't like it about why we didn't like it and what could have been improved and and how the editor Poked in and said, Move it along, move it. Uh, We imagine. Uh, (laughs) And you've got to end now. (laughs) Like, that's one of the problems with Barbara Kingsolver, who I enjoy tremendously. I think the Poisonwood Bible was probably the best novel of that decade. But she can't end. And so the ending is kind of like a, I don't know, an appendix or something. It just, okay, we have to stop, stop. (laughs) So. Uh, otherwise, she's um, amazing. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Has anyone in the group been inspired to write anything in response? I mean, beyond responding to the conversation you have, like to write your own novel or to write
2: your own, I, own book? Well, we do have one novelist in the group, and she, she, we started out with a, a memoir that she had written about her childhood growing up in Nazi-occupied Denmark, and that was quite nice. And then she wrote some other things uh, about... Uh, uh, 19th century, a 19th century woman who was vaguely involved with time travel <laughs> in, in the Concord region, I'm not sure. But I don't think we have any fresh novelists, uh, no, mm. no.
0: Maybe that could be you, you could start writing, you could write some more poems
2: Oh. the group. Uh. <laughs> uh.
0: Well, I always like to end by asking for a recommendation of something that you've really enjoyed reading recently that people might want to check out.
2: Oh, I should have brought my other list with me. Um, oh, uh, you've, you've drawn a blank. No, that's okay. <laughs> Complete blank. Well, the man who, who uh, he, he wanted the moon, and before that was... I'm, I'm really sorry. They're all blank. Okay. I had to, you know, okay. I, I, uh, every year for the annual meeting, I write a little report for the bookstore, and I incorporate all the titles into a poem, which I then sing to a popular song. Wow. And some are better than others. This year's was, was not very good. <laughs> but some some were a lot of fun. We were uh, those ones about the desert, uh, Gertrude Bell and um, some of those people who divided up the Middle East with Lawrence of Arabia, and they were really there, <laughs> and drawing little crosses on the map. So, a lot of the history things. Oh, uh, yeah, 1491 is one of the books coming in here, before Columbus. That was so interesting. So, yeah, we get some history sometimes. Mm. And what I, well, I think I've told a lot of books already that <laughs> I like. No, it's been great.
0: Thank you. Thank you so well,
2: if much. I, uh, if I could send you my list afterwards, you can.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah.
2: Oh, oh I'll, I'll take share. your email. Huh?
0: Yeah, that'd be send wonderful. It on if you'd like. Excellent.
2: Yeah. I can't. I. I don't. I don't really like old books. <laughs> <laughs> I like shiny covers in the in airports. <laughs>
0: I'd like to thank our guests Barbara Powell and Cornelia Robart for sharing their stories with us. I'd also like to thank our technical director Taylor for all her help. You can follow us on Twitter at chapterspod. You can find me at marymahoney123 and Taylor at mjtthephd. Visit our website www.chapterspod.com if you'd like to share your story on chapters. You can also find links to every book mentioned on this and every episode. Thank you for listening.